Today is the first day of our September, October seven-day session. Um, it's Sunday, the 29th of September, 2019. And um, for this session, we're going to take up the teachings of a, a female Zen teacher, um, There aren't many um, kind of extended records of, of the teachings of the ancient masters. We we know some of their names now. Um, we have um, anecdotes about them, bits and pieces. But um, for many of them, we don't yet have an English um, extensive records of their teachings as we do for many of the, the male Zen masters. And there are different reasons for this. Um, many of the the records of uh, female teachers have been lost. They they weren't preserved in the same way that the the male teachers were, or they weren't recorded in the first place. Um, and then another thing that happens is that um, they don't get translated into English. Um, you think of the, the numerous texts that the Cleary brothers have have translated, um, and not one of them from a female teacher. Um, sometimes they may be translated but not published. And another thing is that sometimes the the interests of the translators in these um, these women teachers isn't the same as is our interest in terms of being practitioners. So it may be there may be translated material, but it's not all that useful for Taisho. When we come to um, modern times, there's a little bit more available uh, for contemporary, uh, especially Western teachers, and um, that's where what we're going to take up today. We're going to. Um, read some of the, the teachings from uh, Maureen Stewart Roshi. Uh, her dates are 1922 to 1990. Um, so she's 10 years younger than uh, Roshi Kaplow and um, started practice uh, in 1966, just when Roshi Kaplow had come back from Japan and was setting up um, this Rochester Zen Center. Going to be um, dipping into two different books. Uh, one is uh, called Meetings with Remarkable Women by Lenore Friedman, which was published in 1987, and it has fairly brief sketches of uh, 16 different women Buddhist teachers. Uh, from different traditions, Zen and Vajrayana and uh, Theravada. And then another text we're going to be using is is called Subtle Sound, the Zen teachings of Maureen Stewart. And this is um, edited by uh, Roko Sherry Chayat, from, who's um, I think still probably abbess of the um, Syracuse Zen Center, who's been here on a number of occasions for American Zen teachers meetings. And this second text uh, was published in 1996.
So we'll start off about with some um, bi biographical material and um, have a bit more than we often do for the for the ancient masters, since this is um, just recent history. And we'll start from um, reading a little bit from Subtle Sound, but I'm going to be uh, switching back and forth between these two books quite a bit. So Maureen Stewart was born on March the 3rd, 1922. The most influential figure in her early childhood was her maternal grandfather, Sam Haight, who worked a 640-acre farm in Saskatchewan, Canada, with loving and meticulous care. The son of a wrathful preacher, he had little use for what he considered the platitudes and hypocrisy of organized religion. His own beliefs tended towards an idiosyncratic blend of pacifism and socialism, but he eschewed any and all platforms. What particularly struck Maureen was the way he treated every being, sentient and insentient alike, with respect and appreciation. Her immediate family lived in the small town of Keeler, where her father ran a bank and her mother ran a proper household and made sure her three children were exposed to the important cultural refinements. Fortunately for Maureen, this included music lessons. She took to the piano avidly, sensing its grandeur, its potential for making her for taking her beyond the petty-minded atmosphere of small-town preoccupations. In addition to music, she was nourished by her frequent visits to her grandparents' farm with its sod-roofed house and by her solitary forays into the prairie where she would sit absolutely still for hours at a time, infused with a feeling of intimacy with every blade of grass, every breeze." She says something, some, a little bit about this herself in um, this other text. So, this is Maureen Stewart speaking. I have the feeling I was a Buddhist in a former life. When I was a very small girl, my mother said, I always needed time to just go and sit and be quiet. Our house was a very lively place, always many people there, visitors from all over, many things going on. She said I used to take a pail of cold pancakes away for the day and go out and sit somewhere quietly. I always seemed to need that. At one point, I went and visited a little store and found a tiny Buddha and some incense, and I used to sit in my room with them. I must have been seven or eight. This was always a need in me, the feeling that you had to, every so often, shut down everything, just be in touch. I always went outside somewhere, to a hill, where there was wind, or to a slough where, that had tall grasses. I had to look up this word, um, S-L-O-U-G-H. It means a hollow or a, or a, or a dip in, the, in land or even a swamp. And we'd sit with it within the tall grasses uh, and listen to the crickets 
and listen to birds and shut down all mental activity. Um, we, were, we were talking the other day um, at a tea break about how children in middle fifth class families now, and this I think goes for both here and in New Zealand, um, have very little unstructured time in their lives, un- unsupervised time. Probably most parents now wouldn't um, be comfortable with um, a, sm- a small child going off on her own for hours at a time. And it's, just, it's a pity that this isn't, uh, for, most, for most families, a possibility. She continues, And my grandfather was a wonderful teacher, just in the way that he conducted his life. He didn't know anything about Buddhism, I'm sure, but I really feel he was a Buddhist innately. He behaved in a way that was very respectful of every living thing, of every human being he came in touch with. He never went to church, and he was a professed agnostic. Sometimes when he got really strong about it, he said he was an atheist. But he practiced a wonderful way of life. When people came to his house, he offered them whatever he had. If they needed something, and he saw they needed it, he gave, without any thought of return. He treated his animals and everything on the farm with the most wonderful consideration, love even. He was my first teacher. Uh, Maureen Stewart's first contact with uh, Buddhist teaching didn't happen until um, she went to Paris at the age of 23. Uh, She went as as a music student um, with a scholarship to study with um, uh, Nadia Boulanger, who was who was one of the, the top piano teachers of the, at the time. But one day in Paris, she picked up a book called An Introduction to Oriental Thought, and uh, she started to read it. Um, and she could, says that she can still remember the feeling of identification. The aha, and she she describes writing in the margin, sort of uh, enthusiastically. That's it. Finding the book was a turning point, but there was no one to ask. How do you practice? What is this? How do you do this? Reading about it felt something like eating a menu, no real food. The book seemed to intimate some sort of practice, but gave no specific instruction. This is Lenore Friedman, the the editor of this book, speaking. She says, As a musician, Maureen knew that her ability to play the piano was entirely dependent on daily practice. How could she ever understand her whole being without practicing? When she, when she returned to the United States, she was living in New York City and um, hoping to find uh, a teacher there, a Buddhist teacher. And she describes having uh, a wonderful experience of suddenly um, 
DT Suzuki coming on the television and and um, her feeling completely um, drawn to him. She says, I sat right down beside him and had a wonderful communion with him. You can see her sitting next to her, her black and white TV. Uh, during this time, she met and married uh, Oscar Friedgood, who was a, a, both an artist and a businessman. And she began an active uh, concert career, playing the piano, and started a family. Then one morning in 1966, um, after taking her three children to school in midtown Manhattan, she just decided she would take a different route walking home. And she was walking down West End Avenue when she, she noticed on the side of the building um, the words Zen Studies Society. She um, immediately thought she'd found what she was looking for and walked into the building and asked for a, a schedule. Two days later, she, she returned and sat down on a sitting cushion for the, for the first time. And just three weeks after that, she went to her first sashin. Uh, it, was, it was in upstate New York and with Yasutani Roshi, who had come from Japan. And um, that was the beginning of her Zen practice, a pretty quick, a quick passage from, from sitting to Sishin. And there's some more detail about this, this first Sishin. Um, here in this other, other text. So after she had, had um, filled out her application, she got a call from one of the senior students of the Zen Sari Society um, to um, ask her if, if she knew what a Sishin was. <laughs> it was a good question, because I think many of us sign up to Sishin and we don't really know what it is or what we're letting ourselves in for. And he asked, asked her... Uh, two questions. He wanted to know if, if she could get up early in the morning and if she could sit still. And uh, she answered yes to both questions. And he said, well, I guess you can go. And it, 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 these, are, these are pretty good minimum requirements for attendance at Sashin. Sitting still is so important some chance of, of stilling the mind when we, when we can, can still the body. It's the easiest position to be in in order to be able to still the mind. The day came. Maureen boarded the train to Clarenville with Ruth Lilienthal and Lillian Friedman and several other Zen students 
and their excitement was evident, for the conductor came over and asked them where they were off to. We're going to a place in the mountains, someone explained. Will there be entertainment? A floor show? he asked. Not quite sure of what she meant, Maureen found herself saying, Oh yes, the floor show goes on all day. When they arrived, the place seemed rather strange. There was a a main house filled with furniture, and there were several small cottages in the woods. The first order of business was to move all the furniture out of the living room and pile it in the other room. Then they covered the windows with white sheets. Newcomers, like Maureen, were asked to meet with Yasutani Roshi in a special ceremony to formalize the student-teacher bond. Then she remembers being asked, Are you here to do bompo zen, or are you here to become enlightened? Maureen didn't know what they were talking about, but must have given the right answer, for they were ushered into Sishin. I'll just take a little bit of a, um, a digression here to um, explain what this this bompo zen is. Actually, that's a typo in it because um, it's it's bompu zen. But this was something that that um, Yasutani Roshi talked about, and there's a, there's, it appears in the Three Pillars of Zen um, in. Yasutani Roshi's introductory lectures. <clears throat> so this is Yasutani Roshi speaking now. I shall now enumerate the different kinds of Zen. Unless you learn to distinguish between them, you are likely to err on decisive points, such as whether or not satori is indispensable in Zen, whether Zen involves the complete absence of discursive thought and the like. The truth is that among the many types of Zen, there are some which are profound and some more shallow, some that lead to enlightenment and some that do not. It is said that during the time of the Buddha, there were 90 or 95 schools of philosophy or religion in existence. Each school had its particular mode of Zen, and each was slightly different from the others. So here Yasutani Roshi is using the word Zen in a little bit different way to the way we use it now. We, when, we, when you use Zen now, we usually think it as being, um, at least as those of us who are practicing, we think of it as being the Zen school a particular branch of Mahayana Buddhism. But here, Yasutani Roshi is using the word Zen um, as a stand-in for the Indian dhyana, which um, translates as, as concentration practice. So he's saying that many, many different schools of philosophy and religion have concentration practice as part of what they teach so as we continue to read his words here keep this in mind he says all great religions embrace some measure of zen since religion needs prayer and prayer needs concentration of mind the teachings of Confucius and Mencius 
of Laozi and Zhuangzi, all these have their own element, elements of Zen. Indeed, Zen is spread over many different activities of life, such as the tea ceremony, no drama, kendo, judo, that's um, way of the sword and way of the hand. In Japan, starting with the Meiji Restoration less than a hundred years ago, the continue and continuing up to the present, there have sprung up a number of teachings and disciplines with elements of Zen in them. Among others, I recall Okada's system of tranquil sitting and Emma's method of mind and body cultivation. Recently, one Tempu Nakamura has been zealously advocating a form of Indian yoga Zen. All these different methods of concentration, almost limitless in number, come under the broad heading of Zen. And uh, we could include here, um, can make, perhaps help clarify um, where it sits. We could include here uh, mindfulness, many forms of mindfulness, um, things like um, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is a kind of a secular concentration practice. Rather than try to specify them all, I'm going to discuss the five main divisions of Zen as classified by Keho Zenji, one of the early Zen masters in China, whose categories, I feel, are still valid and useful. And uh, this Keiho Zenji is a um, Tang dynasty master. Just get you his Chinese name. Wei Feng Tsungmi. So these are his his categories. Go back a long way. Yasutani Roshi continues. Outwardly, these five kinds of Zen scarcely differ. There may be slight variations in the way the legs are crossed, the hands folded, or the breathing regulated, but common to all are three basic elements an erect sitting posture, correct control of breathing, and concentration or unification of the mind. Beginners need to bear in mind, however, that in the substance and purpose of these various types, there are distinct differences. These differences are crucial to you when you come before me individually to state your aspiration, for they will enable you to define your goal clearly the better that I may assign you the practice appropriate to it. The first of these types we call bompu, or ordinary Zen, as opposed to the other four, each of which can be thought of as a special kind of Zen suitable for the particular aims of different individuals. So this is this term that um, Maureen Stewart was, th- was thrown at Maureen Stewart when she came for Sashin with Yasutani Roshi. Bompu Zen. And he continues. Bompu Zen, being free from any philosophic or religious contact, 
content is for anybody and everybody. It is a Zen practice purely in the belief that it can improve both physical and mental health. Since it can almost certainly have no ill effects, anyone can undertake it, whatever religious beliefs they happen to hold, or if they hold none at all. Bompu Zen is bound to eliminate sickness of a psychosomatic nature and to improve the health generally. Through the practice of Bompu Zen, you can learn to concentrate and control your mind. It never occurs to most people to try to control their minds, and unfortunately this basic training is left out of contemporary education, not being part of what is called the acquisition of knowledge. Yet without it, what we learn is difficult to retain because we learn it improperly, wasting much energy in the process. Um, this is true that, that the vast majority of people um, aren't even aware of the importance of the mind, the, the, the essential um, nature of cultivating the mind. And this is one of the wonderful things with, with something like MBSR, that it's being taken into schools and prisons and nursing homes. And uh, people are being introduced to this idea that um, they have some uh, power over their minds, especially over their attention. That, our, that we can train our attention to go where we want it to go. And this is vastly improves our experience of existence in so many different ways, including in terms of acquiring knowledge, which is so important in our culture, seen as so important. He goes on, Furthermore, by practicing this very excellent mode of mind training, you will find yourself increasingly able to resist temptations to which you had previously succumbed and to sever attachments which had long held you in bondage. An enrichment of personality and a strengthening of character inevitably follow since the three basic elements, elements of mind, that is intellect, feeling and will, develop harmoniously. The quietest sitting practiced in Confucianism seems to have stressed mainly these effects of mind concentration. However, the fact remains that Bonpu Zen, though far more beneficial for the cultivation of the mind than the reading of countless books on ethics and philosophy, is unable to resolve the fundamental problem of human beings and their relation to the universe. Why? Because it cannot pierce ordinary people's basic delusion of themselves as distinctly other than the universe. So um, I'm guessing that these, uh, these students of, of um, Yasutani Roshi who, who um, interrogated uh, Maureen Stewart and the, the other new people coming to that session were probably being a bit overzealous and weren't really aware that this uh, first uh, uh, level of Zen or Bompu Zen is perfectly legitimate and beneficial even to have this aspiration to um, 
improve one's mental and physical well-being. It's just that it, it only goes so far. And as Yoshitani Roshi said, this is because it cannot pierce people's basic delusion of um, separation from the rest of the universe. There's a self-other dichotomy. So you could say that, that Bompu Zen treats the symptoms of our dis-ease but uh, doesn't go all the way to the core. Even though that is so, though, we shouldn't scoff at this, at this aspiration because to really accomplish, accomplish it thoroughly is, is to lay the groundwork for um, these other stages of, of Zen. Um, I haven't got time to go into detail on of each of the other stages, but just touch on them. So, the other four are Gedo, Shojo, Daijo, and Saijojo. So, Gedo Zen is is um, the motivation behind practicing Gato Zen is to, to develop um, psychic powers which are possible when, the, when one's concentrated um, energy is very, very gathered then one can develop different kinds of psych- psychic powers or another motivation at this level of Zen is, is um, rebirth in a heavenly realm and uh, Yasutani Roshi classes this as being as being re- religious but not Buddhist, can be religious. For instance, could could maybe put uh, Pure Land practitioners in this category. Some Pure Land practitioners, at least. The next one is Shoujo, and this is where the motivation is um, to into nirvana and it's implied behind that aspiration is that the world is is basically in uh, evil or um, impure and so a longing to escape from this world of suffering arises but only for oneself so this is this would be um, seen as um, an aspiration which is, again, perfectly legitimate, legitimate, but um, indifferent to the well-being of others, considered uh, the small vehicle. Um, Yasutani Roshi says it's like a bicycle, building oneself and riding a bicycle, just, just room for one possibly a very unstable pillion passenger. So again, not seen to be the, the, the highest aspiration because of this, um, f- the focus on one's own liberation um, to the exclusion of, of others. 
then there's Daijo Zen. And this is where Bodhicitta comes into the picture. That one's seeking awakening um, not just for oneself, but in order to be able to, to liberate others as well. So the aspiration is not only to see into our true nature, but to integrate that insight into our daily life, into all our relationships. So not about departing from this world of, of suffering and impurity, but finding a way to engage with it um, wholeheartedly and uh, pure, purely. So we're not projecting the impurity out into the world, but realizing that we um, need to uh, deeply purify ourselves. And this 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 integration is is um, the key thing because even if we have insight or multiple insights, we're still subject to the forces of habit, karmic forces. And so we can have the insight but still be uh, behaving in ways that uh, contradict that insight. And it takes work and ongoing practice to, to integrate our insights into our daily lives. But if we can, if we can come to practice with this, this intention, then we're, we're no longer building a bicycle, but uh, a bus, a vehicle that can, that can bring others along too. Yes, yes, Tani Roshi says a little bit about this. He says, In the practice of Daijo Zen, your aim in the beginning is to awaken to your true nature. But upon enlightenment, you realize that Zazen is more than a means to enlightenment. It is the actualization of your true nature. In this type of Zen, which has its, as its object Satori awakening, it is easy to mistakenly regard Zazen as, as but a means. A wise teacher, however, will point out from the onset that Zazen is in fact the actualization of the innate Buddha nature and not merely a technique for achieving enlightenment. If Zazen were no more than such a technique, it would follow that after Satori, Zazen would be unnecessary. But as Dogen Zenji himself pointed out, precisely the reverse is true. The more deeply you experience Satori, the more you perceive the need for practice. Without, without the ongoing um, daily discipline of practice, we can fall back. Uh, that we can we can regress. 
think in the in the in the Mahayana teachings, um, it's not until maybe the eighth stage of bodhisattvahood that there's no uh, no more regression, no more uh, potential to backslide, so to speak. So everyone needs to keep practicing. Then the last of these these um, five is Sai Jojo. And the Sai Jojo is seen from in the in the in our school the Sai Jojo is seen as being the the um, the, the pinnacle because there's no longer um, any kind of struggle for Satori or any other object. Yastani Roshi says, Inside Jojo, when rightly practiced, you sit in the firm conviction that Zazen is the actualization of your undefiled true nature. And at the same time, you sit in complete faith that the day will come when exclaiming, Oh, this is it! You will unmistakably realize this true nature. Therefore, you need not self-consciously strive for enlightenment. And, and so this is the, um, the, the, the attitude of one um, doing shikantaza, or just sitting. It, it's it's um, no, no striving for anything. But it's not the same as just sitting in a kind of relaxed way, because it demands great attention, unwavering attention, rock-solid stillness and clarity. Practice Shikantaza. So anyhow, that's that's what's behind um, Bompu Zen. Back to back to the account of of uh, her first session. The flies were terrible, just constant. No one told me anything about the many rituals, the bowing at the e- and the bowing. At the end of the day, I decided it was just impossible to go on. I had made a mistake. I had had it with this Zen stuff. Um, this not explaining things is a very big part of of Japanese pedagogy. That rather than explaining something to someone, you you show them, you you get them to do it, and with repetition, um, they have to pick it up. They have to pay attention and figure out for themselves what's going on. But it's very hard for many Westerners. This um, it's just not part of. Um, our culture, and so it can be very painful to be thrown in and, and of course, make mistakes because you don't know what's happening. This Zen stuff also included barked commands and an atmosphere of general hysteria. Students were urged towards Kensho, 
through shouting, exhorting, and the liberal use of the kyosaku. To make matters worse, the pain from an old skiing accident was making the 14 or so hours of sitting in the cross-legged posture physically unbearable. She called Ozzy, that's her husband, and told him she was ready to go home. Reminding her of how much she had wanted to go, he encouraged her to try it for one more day. I stuck it out through nights of hideous laughter on the part of one of the students and through days of terrible pain, and things did get better. It's, it's, um, there's a lot in this short paragraph, um, this, these, this atmosphere, this kind of crazy, energetic, hysterical atmosphere um, was something I gather that w- was experienced in, in Sushin's run by Roshi in the early years, Roshi Kaplow. So it seems to have come to us, down to us through, through Yasutani. And over the years, things have mellowed and changed a lot. We, we hopefully can maintain the intensity um, without the, the histrionics, you could say. Her, her desire to leave is also something that I would expect most of the people, if not all of the people in this room, have experienced at one time or another. I remember vividly myself in my first session here at the centre, sitting in the canon room and and desperately, about day one or day two, um, wanting to leave, but then reminding myself or realising that I'd come 9,000 miles to do the session and I couldn't really just go home. So managed to, managed to stick it out. And I think we can all be very grateful to uh, Maureen Stewart's husband for reminding her of how much she wanted to go. Um, who knows, if, if he hadn't done that, maybe she would have left. Maybe she wouldn't have been accepted back to another sashin. People were often quite strict about that. Uh, somebody left. Things could have gone a very different way than they did. But but help came. One day in Doksan, hearing of her physical plight, Yasutani Roshi told her to just sit any way she could, and she eventually found a posture straddling two cushions that she could maintain. By the fifth day, that was that, she recalled. I was hooked. So she just had to get beyond that, that pain. And then she, she saw, as, as so many of us have, have, have the power of the mind, the way in which it can settle, and our relationship to our pain and the difficulties and, and distractions can shift. She says, I knew that I would go to every single session from then on. She'd found her path. She'd found what she had had intimations of as a child and as a young person.
and she developed uh, a real appreciation for Yasutani Roshi, despite his exhortatory methods. She says, the most resistant student finally knew that he was there for them. Present with wholehearted effort to wake them up, that the boundless vow to save all beings was compressed into his small, frail body. It's funny reading this. Um, I never met Yasutani Roshi. He was way before I first came to the centre. Um, but his photographs, um, he always seems so larger than life. And yet, I guess, in person, he was small. Just um, finish up just with a couple more comments on on um, on uh, this, this Bompu Zen and these other categories. Um, it's important to understand that they, these these categories are just categories, and and um, things don't divide so cleanly. Um, they can have quite fuzzy edges. You know, some days we may just be practicing. Um, Bompu's in and just, just just struggling to to um, get some sense of uh, equanimity and and even even getting on an even keel, dealing with pain, uh, emotional stuff that's coming up, and then um, other times you might have flashes of bodhicitta. This aspiration to awaken for the sake of others may may bloom in us. Uh, we may experience moments of of of. Um, the dropping away of self-conscious effort. So these these different stages can can um, be present or be present in us. We, or we may start wanting relief from from personal suffering, but then as we get that relief, then these other aspirations um, come through. As our awareness grows, we see. Suffering, uh, we, we and, and compassion arises in us um, towards when we see how much people suffer unnecessarily. Well, our time is up. Uh, we'll continue with the rest of the biography tomorrow. beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate 
endless blind passions I vow to uproot Dharma gaze beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gaze beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow